This NBA season, make every three-pointer, alley-oop, and buzzer beater even more exciting with FanDuel. You can bet on everything from first baskets and number of dunks to which player will drain the most threes. Or stack your bets with the same-game parlay for a shot to win even bigger. It's quick, easy, and you'll get your winnings fast. So download the app today and see why we're North America's number one sportsbook. Make every moment more with FanDuel. 19 plus and physically located in Ontario. Gambling problem? Call 1-866-531-2600 or visit connectsontario.ca. Introducing Guinness Nitro Cold Brew Coffee Beer. Blending the smooth, creamy nitro taste of Guinness with hints of coffee, chocolate, and caramel. Guinness Nitro Cold Brew Coffee Beer, your new favorite part of the day. Look for it where Guinness is sold. Must be 21 and over to purchase. Please enjoy responsibly. Diageo Beer Company, New York, New York. What's up, basketball fans, and welcome to Raptors Endgame here on Raptors Republic, a podcast dedicated to talking basketball with those who cover the sport. My name is Lucas Weiss, host of Raptors Endgame, and I'm pleased to be joined by senior writer for Bleacher Report and the host of the Full 48 podcast, Howard Beck. Howard, welcome to the podcast. How are you, Lucas? Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure, Howard, and I got to start off, I mean, we're, we're, we're right now into the second round of the NBA playoffs. What's it been like for you reporting on this event virtually for you? Because I'm sure for, for many of the journalists that, that aren't in the bubble right now in Orlando and, and are covering the NBA playoffs, it must be a unique and challenging experience. I mean, it, it's definitely one of the strangest things I've seen in 23 years of covering the NBA. And, you know, look, for reporters, there's a lot you can do in, in, in covering this game and this league from the comfort of your home, certainly. Um, there's a phone, <laughs> there is Zoom, um, and you can watch everything on TV. It's not the same. Nothing is ever the same as being there. Um, the whole point of being a reporter, you know, look, because there's, there's a lot of people in this space now, right? You know, we've got people who cover the game in a variety of ways, and I'm not saying that any are better or worse than any others. You can be a basketball writer and never leave your house and do just fine. If you're just analyzing the game, um, if you're an X's and O's person, or if you're an analytics person, if you're somebody who just likes breaking down, you know, the fundamentals based on just observation, watching it on TV, you can do that effectively. But for journalists covering this league who have, you know, spent, in my case, a couple of decades, going to games, using pregame time to chat up GMs and scouts and assistant coaches and head into the locker room, chit-chat with players, just, you know, moving around the league and having conversations and gossiping and picking up on things. There's some of that you can, again, you can do remotely, but there's nothing like being at a game for the reporting purposes. And that part is, is much tougher if you're not uh, at the games, if you're not in the bubble, and there's only a handful who are. Um, and on top of that, yeah, at this time of year, like, I wouldn't necessarily be somewhere right now in the middle of the semifinals unless there was a specific feature I was working on. Back in my beat writing days or back in my newspaper days, you know, the New York Times would be sending, sending me to somewhere every round, sometimes multiple places per round. I used to – the joke was like I was like this vulture sweeping in to uh, – or, or, or swooping in to close out teams because the most interesting games were always closeout games. Somebody's about to get upset. Somebody's finally going to advance that, you know, uh, that has championship expectations, whatever. And so I just bounced series to series to series. And for the last 
six months, I have not bounced anywhere except around my neighborhood, basically here in Brooklyn. Um, so it, it is, it, it is strange. This is the longest period I've gone in 23 years without getting on a plane or checking into a hotel. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's different. No doubt. But I want to follow up on what you said about how you used to like bounce around a different series. Do you prefer what it is now for you where you're just sort of staying in one place or maybe going to one series later on in the playoffs compared to those days of just bouncing around a different series? They each have their own advantages. Um, you know, it was a ton of travel during that period of my career. And uh, it was, you know, certainly tough on, on family life. You know, my daughter was small back then. And, and so uh, all that travel was tough. But in terms of like bouncing from between series versus like, especially in the conference finals, conference finals, that's when I would usually settle in conference finals and finals. Um, and there's the other footnote to all of this is that I will, I'll be missing the finals for the first time mm. in many, many years. Um, covering a series start to finish is, 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 is gratifying in a different way. Um, it's harder cause you're, you're away from home for, you know, up to two weeks straight, but you really get a better feel for the personalities and the trends in the series when you're there up close every day, not just at the games, but at the shoot arounds, at the practices. Uh, that's when you really, you know, for all the relationships I have in this league, a lot of them actually trace back to the, that really heavy in-person traditional beat writer type of role I was playing for the New York Times from 2004 to 2013 when, you know, I was covering the Knicks, but the Knicks were never in the playoffs, of course. So, um, <laughs> They'd send me out to Phoenix and, you know, and I'd be covering like Suns Mavericks. And that's when I got to know, you know, Mike D'Antoni a little bit and, you know, Amari Stoudemire and other people I would later encounter here in New York. Um, and, and so it, it was, it was always good to be somewhere start to finish. Cause that's when you really get a feel for people and you get to kind of build up relationships a little bit. So, yeah, I think I probably preferred that, but the bouncing around was interesting too, because you saw, uh, you know, you saw a lot. Um, and you know, all those extra airline miles help in the off season when I want to take my family somewhere. No doubt. And I'm sure your uh, Marriott points as well are, are, are quite, uh, quite handy for, for that as well. But you speak about relationships and I think it's very interesting because I've spoken to, you know, various reporters. I had Gary Washburn, senior writer for the globe on the show, who's actually in the bubble right now. And I just think that for, for in, in these challenging, unique times, relying on relationships is so important for stories because, you know, it, it is all about storytelling. It is who you know and being able to rely on those relationships. Do you find that, that in, you know, re reporting on the NBA remotely, it helps to have had those many years of building contacts and relationships throughout the league? Yeah, it's critical, you know, even, even just sustaining my podcast, you know, I don't, I don't write nearly with the frequency that I once did in the role that I have now, more trend stories and feature stories and, and things that sometimes take weeks, even months at times. And, um, you know, I mean, one of the first stories I did during the shutdown was an oral history of game seven of the 2000 conference finals, Lakers Blazers, mm. you know, a game that I covered back in my Laker beat writing days. And, you know, certainly for something like that, which is, you know, look, almost everybody I talk to there is out of the league, although some are hovering around the league in, in broadcasting roles and other roles. But that was a, a clear case of, you know, I, I know how to, to, to find Robert Ori and I've got a relationship dating back two decades. And 
and Derek Fisher and Rick Fox, um, Shaq, Brian Shaw. Um, you know, there were, there were a lot of guys uh, for that. And then other things I've done, you know, just in terms of the podcast, you know, um, you know, Danny Green was one of my first guests once the shutdown happened. Mark Lazary, the owner of the Bucks. I mean, it's, it's, you're, you're immediately, when you're isolated, you're immediately thinking, okay, I got to put together a, a, an agenda here of some sort, whether it's a story, whether it's a podcast, who are the people I know that I, that I have a pretty good rapport with who I think will definitely hop on the phone or hop on zoom or, or do whatever. And um, so, yeah, it is more important. Uh, you know, if in any other situation in a normal year, if I came up with some idea about, you know, um, I don't know, let's, let's, you know, could I compare the, you know, Lowry to Ananobi pass or that play with 0.5 to something else, you know, I would immediately think, oh, well, there's this one assistant coach who was part of this play. You know, you would immediately start cycling through ideas in your head and who would fit that. And if you couldn't get them on the phone, you'd say, uh, hey, boss, I need to take a quick flight down to, uh, you know, Washington or jump mm. the Acela down to Washington. Um, or I'm going to catch, you know, this guy, uh, you know, at this one. Like you would immediately start plotting out how you were going to get to people in person because in-person discussions and interviews are always better. They're just conversations better. People are more forthcoming. It just feels, you know, I, I would always, I would always, always, always prefer an in-person interview to anything else if I could get it. And then for people who I don't know, so let's say, you know, again, playing off of, of that, um, maybe we want to we want to reconstruct it or something. Ah, I can't get everybody I need just on the phone. That's just not realistic. So, all right, let me zip up to Toronto or you know wherever the, the series was at that point, and give me a couple of days of, of of hanging out at practice and shoot arounds and sidling up to the people I need to talk to and saying, hey, give me a little bit more insight into how this developed or that developed or what you you know how you guys worked on this or something. You know, I'm I'm just making this up as I go here, but um, there are always ways to explore a single play, a single interaction, um, a single game that, yeah, it, it's just not always available to you unless you're actually there to go talk to the people in person. Of course. I mean, you can't, you can't compare that human to human interaction, whether it's in press conferences where, you know, you have those opportunities to maybe walk off the podium with a coach or a player and you just can't have that anymore. Everyone's on the same zoom call. So I think it must make reporting challenging. But like you said, I mean, the importance of relationships so critical in telling the really good stories. Howard, you mentioned that you, you had Danny Green on your podcast. And of course, Danny Green spent a year with the Toronto Raptors. And I know he only spent a year, but from my experience watching Danny Green, listening to him, he seemed to develop a real unique connection with Toronto. And the fans up here in Canada really appreciated it and embraced Danny Green for all he had to offer to the franchise. What, what was it like interviewing him? And did you sense that affinity towards Toronto as well? Oh, he definitely does. He definitely does. Um, I think Dan, this is not to, this is not to diminish his relationship with Toronto, but I think Danny is one of those guys, you know, certain people just know how to embrace their surroundings and have a real appreciation for, good people and, and, um, and good environments. And so look, he, you know, he bounced around a little bit before he really settled in with, with uh, San Antonio and he had a nice long run with them and a very successful one and a, a fantastic organization as the Raptors are too. So I think for Danny Green, that was this, this, you know, great opportunity to go from a, one of the best organizations in the NBA in, in San Antonio where he, you know, got the experience of 
of being a champion and a uh, good place to live, all that stuff. Goes to Toronto, very different, but again, great organization, smart organization, stable organization, do things the right way. Great city. Um, my own bias is seeping in because I just love Toronto. And I, I, oh, but I'm also great. a big city guy, right? Like I, I chose to live in New York. You know, I'm from California and I've been in <laughs> Brooklyn for 16 years. Um, but I think, I think Danny just, he, he's, he's appreciative of environment of, of again, whether it's the people, the city, all of it. I, I think that that's there. And I do think that um, for as short a time as it was in Toronto, he definitely seemed to really uh, embrace that in a way that, you know, I, I, I think he could have been there for, you know, the rest of his career, but this was another opportunity obviously to, to connect with one of the great stars of all time and pursue another championship. And, you know, um, he's, uh, yeah, he's, he's definitely been, I think, you know, uh, he fit in quickly with that Laker team. For sure. And, and, and you also had the chance to interview another Toronto Raptor recently, Fred Van Vliet on the full 48 podcast. And Fred's so interesting, Howard, this is someone who's, who's undrafted, has this bet on yourself mantra and even earned an NBA Finals MVP vote last year. But I think recently, we're also seeing Fred Van Vliet use his voice to really advance the conversation regarding anti-Black racism, police brutality. And he was one of those voices for the Toronto Raptors in leading to the NBA MVPA agreement to uh, introduce social justice initiatives. When you spoke with Fred, was there something that surprised you that that you didn't necessarily know about Fred in your conversation with him on the podcast? It was actually earlier in the season, so I'm having to rack my brain a little bit. Um, and as you know, the last few months have felt like about 10 years. So. Yeah, I'm sure it was probably a different world. For sure it was a different world when you interviewed him, but yeah, no, I, inter- I interviewed him at the team hotel. Um, I remember just, you know, we were having to like, you know, um, manufacture kind of a little pod studio where I was trying to figure out a way to get the microphones set up, or, you know, pulling the desk out from the wall and all this <laughs> stuff. Um, no, I mean, listen, he, he was great. As you know, uh, incredibly thoughtful young man who um, his path alone is fascinating, but I feel like, and, and, he, and he's always more than willing to discuss it because I think it is certainly a, a very much a point of pride, the way he, he came up in this league and the way he's broken out. Um, but he, in any issue you put in front of him, and we've seen that now too, where he's really risen to the occasion, as you pointed out, with uh, with regard to the NBA's activism and engagement um, in this movement, that he has been um, a phenomenal spokesman for that. And I, I look forward, because he's still so young in his career, I look forward to seeing where he takes that. You know, this, there's this generation of players now where this is the new normal. You know, it wasn't normal it wasn't commonplace, I should say, for NBA players or, or athletes, period, to be this engaged politically. And for the NBA, there's now this, this generation of players who are still early in their careers, who have embraced this, who have had the league embrace it, and, everybody, and, and for the most part, had society embrace and fans embrace the fact that they're going to be in this role. And so once those doors are open, once this is no longer – oh, this guy is, is really put, risking something, his career, his reputation, backlash, whatever. Once the risk t- starts to subside some, and there's always some risk, I don't want to downplay that, but once it feels comfortable and you still have 10 years in front of you in your career, I, I just, I'm, I'm fascinated. Like, 
whether it's Fred Van Vliet, whether it's Jalen Brown, any of these guys who have really found their voice, and some of them, you know, Jalen Brown's case, he was pretty outspoken even before this this time. There's an opportunity, really, as they grow into their careers and, and, and continue to grow in stature in this league, to take this any number of directions. And I'm, I'm really fascinated to see what, what those next chapters are for these guys, because suddenly nothing feels out of bounds. Of course. And I think you look at, of course, LeBron James, Chris Paul, and they obviously have the many years of experience in the league and the influence. And of course, they are very great spokespeople in, in regards to these issues. But you need, as you say, the younger players, the lesser known players like a Fred Van Vliet, a Jalen Brown, a Norman Powell to be accelerating this dialogue and getting the necessary action that needs to take place in order to um, combat these issues because they also have lived experiences. They've gone through a lot of what you know many, many players in the NBA have gone through. So I think it's important that they also get the spotlight and use their platform to accelerate th- these initiatives as part of the movement, as you say. It, it was only eight years ago, I think eight years, that uh, in the wake of Trayvon Martin's killing, that the Miami Heat, post for a photo all in hoodies in solidarity with Trayvon Martin. And that was considered a really provocative, polarizing gesture at the time. And LeBron James and Dwayne Wade had organized that photo uh, for the Heat. And there was backlash, mm-hmm. serious backlash, and people questioning whether this was a, a smart move at all. And, you know, a couple of years later, LeBron, Carmelo, Dwayne Wade, Chris Paul, give their speech at the ESPYs about – police brutality. And um, that was a big moment. And now these things, you know, those, those were not that long ago. So for younger fans may not remember them or may not have understood the significance of them at the time. But at the time, that was really bold. I wrote about this um, in July about LeBron James having essentially paved the way for today's NBA to be this engaged, this much of an activist league. And that it, it, it traces back to that SB speech and it traces back to Trayvon Martin and it traces back to LeBron speaking on a number of other issues. You know, usually it was a lot of things, but um, most often, you know, uh, unarmed black people being killed by authorities. And LeBron found his voice in this second half of his career. And because he, he is the standard bearer for this league, because he is one of the greatest of all time, um, he had the standing to do it. And I think it gives cover to or comfort to everybody else in the league to say, well, I can do this too. In a way that in Michael Jordan's era, you know, he was not going to be outspoken. That wasn't, that wasn't the way the league was then. It wasn't the way he was then. But I think if Michael had, and I'm not saying he should have, this is not to get into that discussion. But if, if Michael Jordan had been that bold to say, I'm going to put it my, I'm going to take a stand on, on this issue or that it would have given uh, it would have emboldened others in the league to do the same. I think the fact that it's LeBron in particular that has been out front for the last eight years on these issues has made it possible in a moment like now, like like this one, where all these issues have really come to a head, obviously, for, for our entire world, and certainly in this country, that players are more comfortable because LeBron and, and, and you know, some of his peers, too, carved the path here. Um, and yes, that was another story, by the way, where I did that completely remotely and 
LeBron himself, I couldn't get for that story unless I wanted to get on some group Zoom call that I didn't want to do. Hmm. If uh, in, in a normal circumstance, in a normal year, I would have, you know, looked at the Lakers' schedule, seen, you know, is he coming anywhere close or do I have to fly out there? But I would have, I would have made sure I had that moment to sidle up post-game or after practice and say, hey, I'm working on this thing. Can I get a couple minutes? And, you know, he's been pretty good to me over the years. I think he probably would have. But um, I think I wrote a pretty good story regardless. But I, there's, a, there's a voice that's missing that could have been there if I had the, the access that we have in a normal time. And speaking of access and, and just the unique experience, I know that you recently wrote a feature for Bleacher Report on the home court advantage and, and, and the lack of crowd. And obviously there is pipe, pipe pumped in crowd noise. There are virtual fans, but it's not the same as a playoff game at Scotiabank Arena, TD Garden, or the Staples Center. I'm just curious, when you, what's your process to write a piece like that and what did you discover there that you may didn't you may have not have known before going into the piece yeah, the obvious part of that piece was simply that and I started working on it you know while they were playing the seating games right where we're all just kind of acclimating as fans watching at home and they're acclimating as players and coaches to this different environment and um, the strangeness of the virtual fans and their various head sizes because of how closer, how far they might be from their webcams um, and the piped in noise and the signage and all this. And you're, you're just kind of processing. And all I kept thinking is, you know, I've covered a bazillion playoff games and there are all these cliches that go along with the postseason uh, to do with things like, you know, what's the percentage uh, of a team winning when it's up 2-0? You know, what does that mean? Uh, coaches saying things like after they after their team has lost the first two games on the road, they say, well, that team just held serve, you know, this this awful tennis analogy, <laughs> um, which is not true, by the way. It's, it's, they didn't just hold serve. If you're up 2-0, you know, like 75% of the time or higher, you know, you, you win the series. So it's, it's not just holding serve. It actually matters that a team is up or down 2-0. Um, and then you start thinking about things like, again, cliches here, playoff intensity. The postseason is different. Young players struggle more in the postseason, especially if it's their first postseason. Role players tend to struggle more um, maybe in a playoff game or especially on the road. And why is that and the psychology of that? And so I kept thinking about, like, well, this is the first ever postseason. And, again, this is not some, like, tr- profoundly unique um, observation, but I started thinking about it. So what does it, ma- what does it mean? <laughs> like, what does it mean this is the first – to have the first ever postseason with all neutral site games where they try to manufacture the idea of, of a home court environment, but you just – you can't. It's just no. not the same. And um, I was – it was more about wondering what will happen and then, then trying to project it because nobody could possibly know. Um, but it was interesting talking to – like, I talked to Seth Curry from the Mavericks who was there to see Dame Lillard's – insane shot that you know that that hierarchy shot that that hits the back of the rim bounces literally 18 feet in the air before it comes back down um and what what the reaction would have been for a shot like that or some of Luca's shots just these these big moments and yeah for them it is it's weird there's nobody to to you know bark back at in the stands and there's 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 no you don't feel that intensity around you um and so you know look I haven't looked up the the numbers now, uh, but I, I don't know what the, the home road split is for, for winning percentage at the moment. But, um, you know, we just saw a couple of game sevens. I don't think it mattered where those games were. 
um, you know, uh, it didn't, it, you know, Denver wins out, but it's not because they were the quote unquote home team, you know, same for, for, uh, you know, in that Houston, Oklahoma series, it didn't matter where that game was. I mean, it mattered that it was not in either of their cities. So, um, yeah, I, I think the best stories just come from curiosity, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it can be as simple of an observation as what does it mean when there's no home court? Um, so it was a fun one to do. Yeah, I know. And, and it was a really insightful one to read. And, and I think for me, like obviously in normal times, you know, you can't beat the, the home crowd or that playoff atmosphere, either being in attendance or watching at home on TV. But I think now the conversation is more on the basketball side. I mean, it was back then, don't get me wrong, in normal times, but there's always going to be people that say, well, if it was in a different building, there would be a different outcome. Whereas now, when that's not the case, it's like, okay, like these are two teams playing basketball and it's like, you know, the best team's going to win. So I think that's in sort of a silver lining way is a better way of describing uh, a yeah. particular game or an outcome rather than solely focusing on whether it's home court advantage or not. It's, it is a stripped down version of the game where yes, the talent and the playmaking and the execution are, are absolute, right? There is no, it's not about getting rattled. Now you can still get rattled. I think guys, you know, you nerves still come into play in tight situations in, in high stakes games. But it's, it's, it's definitely a distilled kind of version of the game. Um, but it's interesting because I think it's easy to, to kind of dismiss some of that where you think, well, all right, I, I know the home court exists. And I think, you know, some of that, especially in the playoffs, has to do with, you know, higher seeds are going to win their games, you know, more often anyway because they're the better team. There's all these other things you can ascribe to it. But I will just say, again, having covered the league for, for 23 years and having been to a bazillion playoff games and, and a lot of finals games, the environment does matter. The fans do matter. I don't understand why they do, because noise is noise. And I had this conversation with Mike D'Antoni and with Seth Curry, with a couple of the people that I did, Danny Green, who I talked to for that story. Um, it's just noise. And so it, it's whether they're for you or against you doesn't really actually matter. That's psychological, right? You can process it any way you want. But the fact is, it's hard to turn that off. You're cognizant of it. How do you, you know, when they're cheering loudly and you're the road team, you know those cheers aren't for you. So it, it's, it's not just noise. It's noise directed in a way that plays on your psyche. And I'll also just say this, having, you know, walked into a, into a finals game, any number of cities, any number of years, it feels different when you walk in. There is an energy and electricity in the, in the arena an often kind of almost nervous energy that you just feel. And I, I have no stake in these games. I don't care. I don't care who wins or who loses. I never, it's, it doesn't enter my mind at all. Other than is this the night I get to go home <laughs> or tomorrow go home? Um, is the is the series over? Is the season over? But aside from selfish impulses to, to want to be done sometimes um, I don't have any stake in it. And yet, I'll walk into Oracle Arena during the finals or, in, you know, to Quicken Loans Arena or Scotiabank Arena. I'll walk in and I, you feel it. And it, it, you're on edge also for no particular reason. I have nothing at stake other than trying to make deadline. Um, you feel it. 
And so if I'm feeling it as a neutral observer, you can only imagine how much it affects the players and even the coaches. That's really interesting. And I want to follow up on that because I think whenever journalists, I've talked to many journalists, they, they cover big events. There's almost this sense of a greater weight on the words that you write, knowing that this is a big event, more eyeballs yes. are going to be on your content. Is that what you feel as well in, in terms of that nervous energy that you describe? It, and that is absolutely true. Um, and again, there's, it, it, you'd like to think that, well, I've written a thousand game stories. I've, I've covered all these games on deadline. What does it matter whether it's a mid-February game between the Knicks and Grizzlies versus a finals game? It's the same process. You're the same writer. You do the same basic reporting um, before and after the game. But no, <laughs> just like with the players where you feel it more because the stakes are higher, when it's a big moment, you want to capture the moment. You want to capture it right. You, want, you, you do. You want the stories you write in, normally in June um, to be your best stories. I want, you know, that, that whether the game itself was better or worse than a game in January, I want my story to be better because the, the stakes and the, the meaning, uh, meaningfulness of the game are, are weightier. And so, yes, um, it's the kind of thing where even after doing this for a long time, it can still kind of play with, with your head a little bit. And, yes, that is part of the nerves. And, again, yeah, you'd think, having done it a billion times, that, that it would – it would just be routine and you wouldn't let it get to you as much. I think I'm probably a little calmer about it now, but it's still, it still affects me. It's still, it, it, you can't, you can't turn it off. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's mostly a, mostly a, a healthy anxiety. There are four playoff series remaining. We're in the second round of the NBA playoffs as we're recording this. What's the one storyline that you're really focusing on Howard as, as the playoffs continue? Um, so at, at the, at the moment we're recording, the Lakers are down one Oh, that's a little bit of a stunner, but whatever it's, you know, game one of a series with a very strange and unique opponent with the Rockets. Um, you know, we're one game in with, you know, the, the other, uh, with, with you know, Clippers nuggets. Um, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's hard, to, it's hard not to, it's hard to avoid the obvious on this one. It's hard to avoid the obvious, which is that the Bucks are down three zip and, Giannis, who I think will probably be announced as the two-time MVP today because you usually want to do that before a team has been eliminated. <laughs> um, and who knows? Maybe he'll refuse. Maybe he'll just say, look, let's just do it after the season. I don't want to do it while I'm down 3-0. It's too awkward. Um, but, yeah, I mean, listen, there is no other story today. Um, I, I think we're still on track probably for an all-LA conference finals, and we will all in the media be bummed that we didn't get to spend two solid weeks not even having to check in and out of hotels or get on planes and cover a full series in LA everybody was looking forward to that starting last summer you know a year ago um and Toronto has, has has you know saved their season obviously and so that's certainly going to be um I think that could be an intrigue I think that can go the distance I think I think Toronto Boston could go to seven but man Giannis being down three zip and going into an offseason where he's heading into the last year of his deal where he's eligible for a supermax and where in today's NBA in an era of player empowerment and player movement we know what that means you get offered a supermax and if you say no i'm good it usually signals that you probably want out or at least you're not a, a safe bet to resign and all of a sudden we start talking about potential trades um so you know that 
those wheels are already turning and this is going to be one of the longest off seasons. Well, I mean, potentially we don't really know, right? Like, you know, season's probably not starting in December. Maybe it starts in January or February. Maybe it doesn't start till March. There's going to be a long stretch here for everybody to freak out and speculate on, on Giannis's future. And it's already begun. No team's ever come back from 3-0. We know that. As I kind of mused on Twitter last night, hey, look, if ever there was a time to come back from 3-0 and, and, and break that, that trend, it might be now because there's no travel, there's no home court advantage. Winning four neutral site games, plausible. And the only reason, of course, it's not pl that plausible, as people have shouted back at me on Twitter, is, yeah, but they've looked terrible. <laughs> they don't look capable of beating the Heat even once, much less four times in a row. Fair, but maybe. We'll see. Um, assuming the Bucks lose, the consequences for uh, the entire league could be uh, quite high, quite uh, intense, because um, this is today's NBA. And no matter how many times Giannis and others have said, this is where I want to be. I'm going to be the guy to, to, to buck trend, so to speak. I, you know, we know what the modern trend is. When you hit a ceiling, especially if you're in a small market where they can't attract another high-level free agent, another high-level, uh, you know, another superstar to, to tear, pair up with. And I know he has always said he doesn't want to do that either, but Toronto is going to come after him hard. Miami's going to come after him hard. The Warriors don't have cap room, but they'll, they'll, they've been creative before. They will try to make their pitch. The Lakers will try to make their pitch. The Clippers will try to make their pitch. Um, hell, probably throw the two New York teams in there too, even though the Knicks are so far away from contending. It's, it's, it seems far-fetched to say the least. But, the, you know, all the glamour teams are going to be, be circling like vultures um, and probably already are. Well, it's 2020, Howard, so if there's ever a time for a team to come back from 3-0 down, it, it could be now just because it's been a, a year full of weirdness. But I also think of, look, look, the Miami Heat have been incredible in this NBA playoffs and, and what Eric Spolstra has done. I know that people look at Eric Spolstra and, and they remember the heat of the early 2010s with LeBron, D-Wade, Chris Bosh winning a couple of championships, but... I think what he's been able to do with this team and what Jimmy Butler has done, him saying that this is, quote, a business trip for him and the emergence of Bam Adebayo and Goran Dragic, the Heat are going to be a tough out. And with that defense, they're going to give teams all, all that they can handle. And, and they certainly did for the Toronto Raptors in the games where they faced them earlier this season with that zone defense. The Heat are – Let's, let's talk about Spolster first of all. Um, Eric Spolstra had the, the uh, you know, unfortunate, you know, role of being coach to the modern-day super team at a time when people were still trying to get their heads around it. Um, his job's in, seemingly in jeopardy in his first month on the job or, or first month of coaching that group. And then they win two championships and go to the finals four straight years and he never gets the credit. He was second on my coach of the year ballot behind Nick Nurse. And um, I don't remember how much more support he got, but Spolstra has quietly become one of the best coaches in the league. We've seen it in the years since LeBron left, what he's been able to do, what that staff has done, what that organization has done to develop young guys. And you look at, at this team right now, this team, this Heat team doesn't have the traditional hallmarks of a title contender. Sure, Jimmy Butler, depending on how you view him, and I've, I've always – I've never sold my Butler stock. I've always been high on him just with all the movement and everything else. He's a top ten player in this league. And 
he and he's adaptable. He he so he fits part of that profile. But you would have thought if if Jimmy Butler were heading toward the conference finals and and, and title contention in year one with the Heat, it would be because it was Jimmy and somebody. Well, the other the somebody is Bam Adebayo, a player who Eric Spolstra and, and his group developed, who was a, a mid first round pick, who did not have superstardom stamped on him, and they've. Uh, they've, they've had a phenomenal season with Goran Dragic, who I think made like one all NBA third team five years ago. Um, and he was, you know, in the latter stage of his, his career, but it's just been incredibly solid for them. Two rookies, Kendrick Nunn and Tyler Hero, who started a ton of games and who were playing key roles in the playoffs. This is not a traditionally constructed contender by any stretch. Um, they, you know, they, they just, they have just done a phenomenal job there. And, um, I think people should not be so surprised that Miami is making this run. I'm not. I picked them to win this series. Um, I always thought that, you know, whether it was them, Boston, Toronto, I always thought other teams in that top tier would have a shot at Milwaukee because I thought the Bucks were a, a, a little more vulnerable than their record suggested, let's say. Last question for you, Howard, and I really appreciate you taking the time today. Obviously, 2020 has shown, you know, changes in sports media and, and the pandemic has definitely had its impact on sports media. And as someone like yourself with, you know, who's proficient in long form feature writing, do you still think there's still going to be an audience for that long form in-depth feature story in the current way and in the current way that it's being put out there to consumers? Absolutely, positively there is. Um, No matter what may happen in our industry and, you know, no matter what the, the, you know, and I've seen various versions of this over the last, you know, say 20 years, um, media companies expand, contract, other ones come along. The, the, The fans desire their, 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 their passion for the game, their desire to know more about their sports heroes and how those guys became who they are, how those players became who they are, the coaches even, the GMs, whoever. Um, wanting full explanations behind, you know, a moment that they saw in a game. Um, whatever the 3,500 words or whatever that I wrote about game seven of the 2000 conference finals and that lob from Kobe to Shaq, moments like that, these are meaningful to people. And we can, we, you know, people in, in, my, in my business, I think we all do a great job of, of, of getting those snapshots, of, of covering history as it unfolds, of being that first draft of history as journalists are in the moment, the quick turn game story, the quick follow up the next day, and then you move on to the next game and the next game and the next game. And then, you know, there's a draft comes and goes, the next draft comes and goes. And, and it, it's, it's, it's ever evolving, ever changing, and you're just catching up. But sometimes whether it's as a reporter or fans watching the game, you want to sit back and say, well, you know what? I feel like I never really understood exactly why, say, Kevin Durant left the Thunder or left the Warriors. <laughs> um, and at some point, somebody in my position sits back and goes, you know, I feel like there's more to, t- to tell there. And I remember hearing this one rumor at the time, and I kind of tucked it away, jotted it down, didn't really do anything with it. I'm going to follow up with that person. I'm going to see where that goes. And I'm going to write 3,000 words explaining this if I, if I find that nugget that I really need. Um, or one of my favorite stories that I did about Carmelo and LeBron's 
friendship slash rivalry, which was, I think, five years ago now that I wrote that. That story was, I don't know, it might have been, it might have been closer to 4,000 words. That story is one of the most well-received of anything I've done in the last probably 10 years. Yeah, people love a, a, a good, not, like long form for the sake of long form, no. But a, a, a well-researched, well-written, you know, great tale about whatever, a relationship, a trend, a moment. Yeah, there's always going to be a market for that. There's always going to be a place for that. And anybody who thinks otherwise is foolish. And if anybody wants to veer away from that, I think they're foolish. And I, I just think that um, even in today's sports media culture where we're transaction obsessed and we're viral content obsessed, and it's always about you know that one provocative thing that, that Joel Embiid just said or the next 17 Giannis trade rumors, yeah, that stuff is all part of, of the, the, the energy of this, this media space and of the sport. And it is something that, that is, it's titillating and it gets fans going and it gets, you know, water cooler discussions going and barbershop conversations going and all of that matters too. But people want to know the story behind the story or behind the moment. And so, yes, there will always be an appetite for that. There will always be a desire for that. There will always be a place for, you know, great mid to long form, let's say, storytelling. And um, I'm, you know, I have, I have absolutely no doubt about that. Howard Beck, he is a senior NBA writer for Bleacher Report and the host of the Full 48 podcast. Howard, thanks so much for joining me today on Raptors Endgame here on Raptors Republic. Been my pleasure, Lucas. Thanks for all the thoughtful questions. This was, uh, this was a lot of fun. Appreciate it. Introducing Guinness Nitro Cold Brew Coffee Beer. Blending the smooth, creamy nitro taste of Guinness with hints of coffee, chocolate, and caramel. Guinness Nitro Cold Brew Coffee Beer, your new favorite part of the day. Look for it where Guinness is sold. Must be 21 and over to purchase. Please enjoy responsibly. Diageo Beer Company, New York, New York.